Good morning. My name is Karen. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 104, 5 through 6, and 19 through 24. You established the earth on its foundations so that it will never fail. You covered it with the watery depth like a piece of clothing. The waters were higher than the mountains. God made the moon for the seasons and the sun too, which knows when to set. You bring on the darkness, and it is night, when every forest animal prowls. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Then people go off to their work, to do their work until evening. Lord, you have done so many things. You made them all so wisely. The earth is full of your creations. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Wanda, and the New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. It is written in scripture, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will reject the intelligence of the intelligent. Where are the wise? Where are the legal experts? Where are today's debaters? Hasn't God made the wisdom of the world foolish? In God's wisdom, he determined that the world wouldn't come to know him through its wisdom. Instead, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching. Jews ask for signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. It is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading. Uh, greetings, I'm a marvel. How we doing today? I'll be reading from John, the first book of John, chapter one through five. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing, anything was not made without him. In him was life, and the light was the light of man. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you have spoken. We thank you that you've sent us your Son, who is the very word of God. We pray now that by the Holy Spirit, you would open up our hearts and our minds to be able to see Jesus, to be able to hear your word, and that by your spirit you would transform us to be more like him. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you this morning. Uh, we are beginning a series today called Long Nights, and it is also Family Sunday 
So shout out to all the kids in the room who are not aren't normally in the room. Can I get a whoop whoop from the kids in the room? Come on, here we go. So when you hear that the series is called Long Nights, if you're a parent with young kids or babies in the home, you might be thinking, tell me about it. Uh, this is not a series on parenting, on surviving, but it is a series that relates to all of those struggles related to that. Uh, when I was a child, the nights seemed long because I was afraid of the dark. Uh, I was one of those kids that had to have a light left on maybe in the hallway or in the bathroom nearby because I thought, oh man, oh, who knows? What, everything just seems creepier in the dark. And as parents, you know, as adults maybe, we, we don't really grow out of the fear of it. We still think darkness represents kind of this unknown and uncertainty, but we've learned to sort of rationalize and to say, well, there really aren't any monsters under the bed and nobody's going to do this or that. But if we're honest, there are still moments where the darker it gets, the more uncertain we become. Uh, and, and in fact, there are certain nights where even as an adult, I can't wait for morning to arrive, such as when you're camping. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience and you're like, man, this is the ground is uncomfortable and it's cold and you're like, when will morning come? And you keep checking your phone or your watch and you're like, 4 a.m. I think the sun rises pretty soon, right? And you just can't wait for the sun to rise and end it all. And then all of a sudden, it all feels better. Uh, there's something about the night that makes us feel uncertain. And so the series is called Long Nights because it's the series that's going to help us as we walk through the season of Advent. Now, Advent, some of you may know this. This may be new territory for others of you. But Advent is not another word for Christmas or Christmas time or the Christmas season. In fact, in Christian practice, Advent is its own separate season. It's a season that comes before Christmas. Christmas begins on the 25th, or if you'd like, at midnight on the 24th, and then actually goes for 12 days. This is where you get the song, 12 Days of Christmas, and all of that. But Advent is the season right before it that is really about preparation. So actually, in, in a lot of Christian tradition, Advent, because it's pre preparing for the arrival of King Jesus, uh, in many times has been a season of fasting, you're like, no, this is not the time of the year. I am not listening to you. You're right. Enjoy all the Christmas cookies you want. Don't, you don't have to make it a season of fasting. But the idea is that it's a time of preparation to say the king is coming. How will we make our hearts ready? But not only is it a time of preparation, it's also a time of longing and anticipation. Preparation and anticipation. What are we longing for? You know, if you're experiencing in your life right now, in this season, in this moment, uh, some hardship, and some difficulty, maybe dealing with a difficult medical report or a financial situation or relational strain, maybe there's things that are turbulent in your business or in your life, you, you look around you and maybe you look at all the sort of festive, sentimental, holiday-ish stuff and you think that none of that applies to you. Maybe you found yourself alone this week uh, at Thanksgiving, or maybe you're dreading the weeks to come because you're thinking this is all about people who have friends and family surrounding them, but I don't. And so it can all feel like everyone else is living on the inside of a perfect little snow globe while you're on the outside looking in. Well, Advent gives voice to that longing. Advent gives you permission to say, you know what? I have anticipation for the world's rightful king to come and set the world right again because all is not as it should be. And so Advent gives us permission even in the midst of 
the waiting and the joy and the brightness that can surround Christmas, Advent gives us permission to say, but you know what? As good as it gets here, it still is not what will come one day when Christ returns. And as low as it gets right here, it will not be the end. The night will give way to the light of dawn. Amen? And so this series is meant to help us make it through the long night of Advent, as it were, until the brightness of Christ appearing appears again. These, to mark, to help us in this series, are a series is a set of songs. Uh, they're called antiphones, O antiphones. Now, I didn't know too much about this, but some of our staff, Lori and Jason and others, kind of helped educate me a little bit on what these antiphones are. They're basically old short choruses or little songs that were written maybe in the 8th century, maybe in the 4th century. And, and what these songs are based on was Old Testament images of the Messiah, Old Testament expectations of what it was going to be like when the Messiah came. And so Advent, we look back and we think about Israel's waiting for their Messiah, and we think, yeah, yeah, let's reenact that. But also, we're waiting for the Messiah to come in fullness. What's the difference between their waiting and our waiting? Well, we know who this king is. We know that this king is Jesus. Not only that, we know that this king has won a great victory on the cross and by his resurrection. So we have that vantage point. And we know this king is actually seated on the throne. Amen? So even in our waiting, we sing these songs or we revisit these themes with a different kind of perspective. And so this morning, week one, we're going to talk about the song, the antiphon, O Wisdom. And it goes a little bit like this. I obviously don't know the tune here, but these are the words. O wisdom coming forth from the mouth of the Most High, reaching from one end to the other mightily and sweetly ordering all things. And if you can't see it, there's a colon there. Here's the, here's the prayer. Come and teach us the way of prudence. And so we're praying this as a way of saying, oh, wisdom of God, come. You're the one that orders the world. You're the one that reaches from one end to the other. Come and teach us your way. And so this morning I want to say three things about wisdom, about the wisdom of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And the first is that wisdom looks like the design of creation. Wisdom looks like the design of creation. We heard the Old Testament reading this morning from Psalm 104, and actually throughout that whole psalm, it was too long to read the whole thing, but if you read that whole psalm, it lists all the different aspects and elements of creation as a demonstration of God's wisdom. And it talks about the moon to mark the seasons and the sun knows when to go down and you bring darkness and it becomes night and all the beasts of the forest prowl. And then skip down to verse 24. He says, how many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Wisdom looks like the design of creation. Now, the truth is when we look out at the world around us, it's difficult to see that design sometimes. It can be difficult when we think about the disorder or the chaos of natural disasters or maybe even violence but in, in, even in the animal kingdom, let alone in the human species. And you look, about, you look around and you see the divisions and the strains and the stresses in the world around us and we think, that looks like the design of creation? No. No, it doesn't. And in fact, this is why the scriptures begin with two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, 
to say to us, look, this is how it all was made to be. And what we see out here that does not look like that is actually the distortion of sin. So give me, let me give you a couple examples of this. Sometimes people will look at Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve and say, oh, you see, this is how men and women are meant to relate to one another. And the man is the boss and the woman just follows. And, you know, the woman might try to undermine the man, but the man will try to dominate the woman and all of this stuff. And we look at that and we say, well, this is God's design. But that's not actually God's design. In Genesis 1, we, we discover Unlike any other narrative of the ancient world, the image bearers, the one made in the image of the king, is not one solo male human king, but instead male and female. Genesis 1 says male and female, he created them in his image. Now all of a sudden we realize dignity and equality are given to men and women. All human beings are made in his image. And then we discover that even as Adam and Eve relate to one another in Genesis 2, we discover there is a sense in which she is made to be a, a, a strength that is equal to him. Ezer kednigo, that phrase in Hebrew means that, a strength that is equal to him. So now all of a sudden, we wait, wait, the design of creation is mutuality and equality and dignity, not hierarchy. Wisdom looks like the design of creation. And in many ways, what we're trying to do in our lives is to find the places where society has bent the original design and to straighten it back in so much as we are able. Here's another example. Take work, for example. Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow, Monday morning, and you're going to say, oh, curse this work. It's the result of the fall. <laughs> Actually, good news, bad news, bad news, work was part of the design of creation. Work was part of how we were supposed to reflect God's wisdom in the world. Well, what's the good news here? The good news is that in every vocation that you are in, paid or unpaid, we are there to reflect God's wisdom and justice, God's order. Order the world so that it will become fruitful. What if you took that as your commission? Now, many of you in the room, you're, you're saying, well, I, I, I don't really, I'm retired. I'm done with that. I kind of put in my time. I don't need to do that anymore. The good news is the kingdom's vision of work has nothing to do with the paycheck. That's not to say you don't gain profits. It's only to say your calling is bigger than your career. I'm going to say it again. Your calling is bigger than your career. And so it might be that you're past the, you say, well, I'm not getting a paycheck anymore. Guess what? The king of kings still has a calling for you. Amen. The king of kings still has a commission for you. Order the world around you in such a way that it causes it to be fruitful and flourish. That's one example of what wisdom looks, how wisdom looks like the design of creation. Learn the logic of it and follow it along. Secondly, wisdom looks like foolishness to the world. Now, this is interesting because maybe you just got pumped up after the first point. You're like, yes, wisdom looks like the design of creation. I'm going to go out there and try to bend things in the world towards God's order and God's design, and everyone's going to love me for it. Mm, not so fast. Because the wisdom of God actually looks like foolishness to the world. We discover this most poignantly in the New Testament. Paul says if the wisdom of God were to have a focal point, it would be the cross of Jesus Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed. 
Sometimes I think we don't recognize how foolish the cross really was. In the ancient world, there were stories of human beings who, were then, who then became divine. But you know who those human beings were? They were great kings. It would have been a Roman Caesar who then all of a sudden gets elevated to divinity. But no one, mark this, no one in human history had ever claimed that a marginalized roaming peasant teacher who was crucified as a rebel and a slave was elevated to divine status. No one ever claimed that. If you were going to make up a religion, you wouldn't make that one up because it is utter foolishness. And so Paul goes on and he spells this out in verse 22. He says, the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ. Or to translate it, we preach the Messiah. We preach a saving king who was killed. You're like, what kind of saving king is that? What kind of deliverer? We preach a Christ who was crucified, a Messiah who was killed, which is a scandal to the Jews. How could he be the Messiah? What would the David and Goliath story look like if David goes out to fight Goliath and gets killed instead? That's how scandalous this is. It's a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The Greeks and the Romans are like, this is the stupidest thing we've ever heard. And yet, he says, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's, say it with me, God's wisdom. Christ himself is God's wisdom. Why is it that the wisdom of God looks like foolishness to the world? Well, for one, the wisdom of God has a different starting point. It has a different premise. It has a different foundation. We were singing this morning, I will build my life on your love, Lord. It is a firm foundation. Christians have a different premise and foundation than the world around us. And not only does the wisdom of God have a different premise, it actually has a different objective. When we reach a certain point, we say, yes, that's the goal. The world around us says, no, it's not. Why would that be the goal? And we say, because Christ crucified. That's the only answer. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. If the world's premise is how can I make as much money as possible in as short of amount of time as possible, the answer is never by observing a weekly Sabbath. If the question or the premise is, how can I be as productive and profitable as possible? The answer is never sustainable rhythms of work and rest. That's never the answer. But if the question is, another example, if the question is, how can I be free and be fully myself? How can I be true to me? The answer is never by giving your life away in service. That's never the answer. So if you, if you have a different premise, you're going to have a whole different way of living. Does that make sense? Some of you are in the room today. You're parents who've chosen to stay at home with young children, with your children. That may look like foolishness to the world. They say, well, that doesn't make sense. You should be doing this. You should be doing this. You should use your gifts in this way. You should use your talents in this way. You should use your knowledge in this way. Why would you invest that in a little child who doesn't even know how to wipe his own anyway? <laughs> it looks like foolishness. Say, well, but it's not because it's discipleship and it's investment and it's the giving up of myself for the sake of another. And that looks like Christ crucified. Do you see this? 
The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world for a number of reasons. Very early on in, in Christian history, one of the most jarring ways that the wisdom of the cross looked like foolishness to the rest of the world was in the way that the Christians treated the poor and the marginalized. Some of you earlier this week uh, were helping the rescue mission serve the homeless community in Colorado Springs. And you've, you've spent some time in that world and you know about this. That's a long-standing Christian tradition. In fact, it was so ingrained in Christian teaching that the Christians should care for the marginalized because we worship a Savior who was crucified. We don't worship a Savior who is strong and mighty and well put together and polished and well-dressed. We worship a Savior who was scandalized by crucifixion, the most shameful form of execution. And so Christians said, if you meditate, in fact, one of the, one of the early church fathers in the 300s was a man named Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory said, reflect on the poor, reflect on who they are, and you will understand their divinity. What he means is you will understand how they reflect the image of God, the divine nature. And then he says, they have taken upon themselves the person of our Savior in being the weak and the lowly. They are actually close to who Christ was. A contrast this with Rome. Before Christians arrived on the scene, there wasn't this attitude toward the poor and the marginalized. In fact, philosoph Greek philosophers had advocated rounding up beggars and deporting them. Greek philosophers taught that only fellow citizens of good character, who through no fault of their own had fallen on hard times, only those people should deserve help. Only help the ones who can help themselves. Only help people who, not by any mistake, or misstep had they landed up in the situation that they're just help the ones who are like like you in all other aspects they are respectable citizens who had just happened upon some bad luck those are the people you should help that's what Greek and Roman philosophers taught how did it all change because a man from Nazareth came healing the sick and feeding the hungry crucified like the lowest of low and God raised him up on the third day. And the followers of this crucified and risen Messiah said, wait a minute, it's not just the worthy poor, it's all who are weak that deserve our help. There was a Roman emperor named Julian. Julian was called the apostate because he was the nephew of Constantine. He was the first Christian Roman emperor in the 300s. Sometimes your, your secular um, history teachers might try to tell you that Christianity was forced on the early Roman Empire. It's not true. There was a struggle in the 300s and 400s of how Christian the empire was going to be. So much so that after Constantine, Julian rejected his Christian upbringing and said, I'm going back to the paganism. I'm going back to the idols of, of my grandfathers. And Julian was trying to rouse up the priests, these pagan priests, to, to do a better job with their idolatry. <laughs> and one of the things Julian wrote to these priests is, is he said, you guys are constantly getting drunk. And he says, you know what you need to do? You need to take care of the poor in your own community. This is what the gods would want. Except that nobody knew that's what the gods would have wanted because for hundreds of years, there was no pagan religion that taught that. No pagan religion that taught that. The irony is that in Julian's attempt to take down Christianity, he used a virtue he had learned from Christianity. This is pointed out by a secular historian named Tom Holland. Julian wrote, 
how apparent it is to everyone and how shameful that our own people lack support from us, whereas no Jew ever has to beg. The Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. That's the legacy. A wisdom that looked like foolishness to the world that made the world even say, actually, that is better. Actually, that is the way to order our lives. The third thing we want to say today is that wisdom looks like Jesus. Wisdom looks like Jesus. John 1 was the scripture we heard read from the gospel this morning. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This word for word is the Greek word logos. It sometimes appears in other philosophy texts as this sense of the organizing wisdom of the world. And John says, in Christian belief, it is not some abstract thing. Wisdom is not a force. Wisdom is not a concept. Wisdom is a person. His name is Jesus. It is through Jesus, Colossians says, that all things were made. It is through Jesus that all things hold together. It is through Jesus and his cross that the wisdom of the world is confronted by the foolishness of God. It is Jesus who is the only truly and fully human one. And so when we ask ourselves the question, what should I do? The answer is always, behold Jesus. Look at Jesus. Sometimes Christians, we make the mistake of imagining that the Bible is an answer book full of instructions. So parents in the room, maybe you've thought that the pressure is on to get your kids to memorize the Bible because the Bible is an end in itself and the Bible has all the answers you'll ever need. Well, look, I'm just going to tell you something that will save you years of future disappointment. The Bible does contain instructions and it does contain teaching. But if you treat the Bible as the answer book, you're going to be confused by it. In fact, there are instances where the instructions even are or appear to be contradictory. And so if your sole goal in life is to find every rule in the Bible and then live it out, A, you'll be disappointed by how unclear it sometimes is in the Bible, and B, you'll be disappointed by your own attempts and how easy it is to fall short of it. The Bible is the Word of God because it reveals the Word of God. The point of the Scripture is Jesus. Jesus said this in John's Gospel. He says, you search the Scriptures, but you missed me. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees. The whole point of the book is how it reveals the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, how Jesus, how it reveals Jesus who is the image of the invisible God and how it promises us salvation in Christ alone and how it reveals to us the Holy Spirit who comes alongside us to conform us to the image of the Son, Jesus himself. Wisdom is not a book. It's not a text. It's not a set of arbitrary rules to follow. Maybe that's the version of Christianity you heard. You better do all these things or else. I'm here to tell you the promise of the gospel is Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. The good news is in Christ alone. And so this morning, if you're here and you're saying, well, gosh, I do need wisdom in this long and lonely night, 
I need some sort of guidance in the midst of this. The gospel for us today is that Christ, the very wisdom of God, died for you, was raised up, has sent his spirit to be with us, so that in every hour of every day, we are never alone. And we have Christ, our wisdom, with us. And when you wonder, Lord, what should I do in this situation or that situation? I wish there was some rule book to consult. I wish there was some... There, there is wisdom in the counsel of the community. It's true. This is why following Jesus is never a solo project, right? I, I, it may clarify things to tell you that wisdom looks like Jesus, but it doesn't simplify it, does it? It doesn't make it any easier. It still takes one another. Dallas Willard, that late great Christian philosopher, said, the goal of Christian discipleship is so that our life looks like how Jesus would live it if he were in our shoes. So if you're a, a parent who stays at home with kids, your prayer is, Jesus, show me how you would live your life through me today. If you're going to work tomorrow, say, Jesus, show me how I might go to work today as if it was you working through me today. That's how we pray the wisdom of God into our lives. Now, this is one of those rare seasons at New Life Downtown where we actually were super intentional and our, we created a liturgy, a devotional book, a prayer book to go along with the series. Isn't that clever of us? It may never happen again. But this Advent, we've created a little devotional that will guide you. In fact, it's not even for every day, so you can miss a few days in this journey up to Advent and be all right with it. But it's based on these same antiphones. It's based on these same songs and will help you as you pray. Because our prayer for all of you is that as we walk with one another and as we walk with Jesus, the very wisdom of God begins to take root in us and begins to show up. And as a result, the world around us becomes, in small and simple ways, put back together just a little bit. And it begins to become fruitful again. And God is glorified through it. Amen? Amen. You bow your heads this morning.